everyone, this is Paul Aronowitz with another Story Slam. This one from Dr. Mamta Parikh, who's a former medical student at UC Davis, a former intern and resident at UC Davis, and a former hematology-oncology fellow at UC Davis, who will be telling you her story today. Thank you and enjoy. Our next uh, speaker is... Uh, Dr. Mamta Parikh, and she is a former resident and a fellow in hematology oncology here and is currently on staff. Uh, is she here? Oh. <laughs> guys, stop second. sitting in the front. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. That's okay. Oh, this was a big mistake. <laughs> Following Maha up is never easy. Okay. <laughs> Every patient I met as a first-year fellow taught me how to be an oncologist. That spring, Mrs. B sat across from me in an exam room, and she was poised like a live wire, the quintessential difficult patient. She'd bounced around from physician to physician, first coming in with abdominal swelling, with workup and indicating ascites. She had peritoneal carcinomatosis and a distant history of breast cancer, so Occam's razor was supposed to cooperate. But the biopsies and cytology weren't consistent with breast cancer. So she had been shuffled to Gynonc. After another biopsy, they'd concluded she didn't have ovarian cancer either. And so finally, she'd landed with me, frustrated, anxious, and angry. She was convinced that the one-month delay between her symptoms and seeing me had decreased her chances of a cure. None of it made sense to her. She was healthy. She was a fighter. No one in her family had ever had cancer. How could she have had two different kinds? She stared me down, asking if there wasn't some chance she could live for 10 years, that she could be cured. That unflinching glare she gave me tempted me for a moment. I wanted to wimp out and say, maybe. But even as a first-year fellow, I'd seen how much damage a maybe could do in this situation. So I steeled myself and explained to her that her disease was metastatic, incurable, and that on average, most patients don't live past two years. As we started treatment, her anxieties started to quell. Still, she'd have outbursts. Every few visits, she let me know she was still very angry, that she'd been dealt an unfair hand. Sometimes she told me colorful stories. Chemo had caused neuropathy that made it challenging for her to thread her quilting needle. And she said, that day it just really ticked me off. Her solution was to throw a full milk carton across the kitchen in a fit of anger. Her friend had subsequently gifted her a dammit doll to channel her rage into less messy outlets. Every few visits, she asked me, and it became almost like a shtick between us, whether she might live for 10 more years, and I would again respond that it was unlikely. Sometimes when I peddled out my same line about the average survival being two years, she would joke that she'd always been above average, and this was going to be no exception. And then slowly, even though she was responding to chemotherapy, the questions changed. She still half-heartedly asked me to give her 10 years, but once that was out of the way, she asked me what was going to happen when the cancer progressed, how she would feel, how she would die. And she started taking trips to places that she'd always meant to go to or to people she'd wanted to see. Just about two years after she started chemotherapy, her husband died of complications of heart failure. Two weeks after that, the cancer stopped responding to treatment. Two months after that, she landed in the hospital with a partial small bowel obstruction. 
I saw her with the resident and medical student who had been caring for her in the hospital. It was one of the easier conversations I've ever had in this situation. When I told her about her obstruction, that it was non-surgical and that disease-directed treatment was unlikely to help, she sighed and said, I figured you were going to tell me that. But what I didn't expect was what she said afterwards, right before I left. She thanked me for always being so forthcoming about her diagnosis and preparing her for this moment. The resident, the medical student, and I walked out of the room together, and I blurted out that a meeting like that one makes oncology fulfilling. When I turned to see the resident and medical student with tears in their eyes, I realized they didn't feel the same. In the end, Mrs. B was above average. She outlived her two-year prognosis on therapy. She seamlessly transitioned to hospice, and she sailed through six months of care, proudly bragging about requiring a renewal. But towards the end of the year, she started having more nausea, and she knew what that could mean. She had thought about it, and she feared dying from a bowel obstruction. She called me and asked me if I would consider her for the End of Life Option Act. In the past, I'd always deferred those evaluations to other physicians. I'm still not sure how I feel about it. But I remembered when I was a medical student, my resident, Efrain Palamantes, recounting to me the most horrific death he'd ever witnessed had been a patient who had died of a bowel obstruction, which had escalated too quickly for anyone to control. I thought of how long Mrs. B and I had known each other and thought of Efrain's terrible story, and I knew what I had to do. I've been thinking of everything Mrs. B taught me. Certainly she taught me how to treat a cancer of unknown primary, what the adverse effects of chemotherapy are. But she taught me to be nimble and to be honest and to pay attention to who I'm treating. There isn't a set script we can follow that will guarantee us any outcome uh, with a patient. Mrs. B also taught me how invaluable the relationship with a patient becomes the longer it continues. When I met her in the hospital and left the resident and medical student in tears, I thought of how hard those kinds of encounters are when meeting a patient nearing the end of their journey for the first time. And when I wondered why I remembered Efrain's description of his patient so vividly, I realized how much we carry with us from our early training and that how that informs us, um, how that informs who we become as physicians. Her case reinforced for me how we are all intertwined in medicine, all constantly learning from each other, and we should never forget that.